You know, I like walking around. I like meeting people. And I say maybe I don't always do photos. Because you know what the trouble with me with photos is? It's not me. I'm not me anymore. You know, as long as I'm me in the room with you guys, that's fine. But the minute I'm posing, I mean, we'll probably do a photo at the end of, of this. Of course. I mean, listen, I, I didn't want to trouble you, but if you would. <laughs> well, you know, when you're posing on the street, you're that famous guy. Yeah. And suddenly, you know, I may not want to be him. I may just want to go into Starbucks. I may just want to go do a bit of Christmas shopping or something. So, um, yeah, so that's, that gets a bit. But I do it, you know, and I say to people, look, happy to chat with you. Shake hands. Let's just talk. And somebody said, you spend more time with them than you would for a photo. Why don't you just do a photo and get it over with? I said, because it robs me of me. Yeah. It changes. You know, I'm not, I'm not this guy I think I am inside. I'm that guy on the poster. So, you know, I, I hold to that more than a lot of people. This week's one day was fab. I'm Ed Chin. I'm John Stone. So I've got a bunch of little one-off things that may or may not lead to longer discussions. So let's go into the RAM pre-sessions. My uh, answering service called me up and said, hey, uh, you had a date cancel out this afternoon, but would you do a demo for Barry Kornfeld at 2 o'clock and such and such an address? And I said, well, yeah, what the heck? I haven't seen Barry in a while. I, I had no That's all it was was just a demo, which we didn't do a lot of. We didn't have time to do demos in those days. So I show up at this building, and it's like a burnout building. It's like 43rd Street between 9th and 10th Avenue, like really scary neighborhood to begin with. And I said, wow, this can't be right. There's a guy sitting in the lobby of the building, and the front door is open. There's no electricity. Guy sitting there at the desk, and I said, is there something going on? He said, yep, down there. I went, uh-oh. This is trouble. <laughs> Walk into the basement. It's just a dingy, rat-infested basement, you know. There's Paul and Linda. And, that, and a funky old set of drums that rented from SIR, you know, studio instrumentals. So they said, hey, uh, do you mind playing for us? And I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> what do you want to hear? You got a bass or a guitar or something? He said, nah, just play. Play some, uh, play some rock and roll. Okay. <laughs> That's how I got the gig anyway. I had my tom-toms with me from another date, and I set them up real quick, and I just went right into Ringo. <laughs> you know, I was just having some fun. And I think it was the fact that I could play, and I also had a good attitude. I didn't give many 
guff about what was going on. And uh, I said, hey, nice meeting you. Great. Good luck. See you later. Left. And a couple days later, the phone rang, and it was, uh, he said, I'd like to, uh, to use you in this uh, recording project. I have always thought that was kind of a weird thing. Oh, come on down to this old beat-up apartment somewhere in the not-so-nice section of New York City and just play for us. <laughs> yeah, and the players weren't that happy about that either. But again, you know, Paul wasn't used to hiring studio musicians to the degree that he used them ever in the past. George Martin took care of all of that. And George Martin knew who he wanted, and he would hire him and bring them in, and they'd play the session. I think Paul didn't quite know what the freelance music world was, the, the freelance session player world, and certainly in New York, you know, where there, these guys are just at sessions from dawn to dusk, maybe later, three hours at a pop, just bang, bang, bang. You, you play anything that's put in front of them and get paid, and that's it. They don't audition. Um, they did it because it was Paul. But a lot of them expressed their displeasure, including David Spinoza. I then got a call from Linda McCartney mm -hmm. one day saying, hi, I'm you know, Linda McCartney. My husband's trying to put a band together. Mm -hmm. da -da 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 -da. Would you come and meet us? And I was like, wow, I thought it was a joke or mm -hmm. something, but it really was Linda. Apparently, they called the Musicians Union here in New York and asked someone at the union to name like five different guitar players, five different bass players, five different piano players, five mm -hmm. different drummers. So, because Paul's going to be doing a solo album, and he didn't want to use, uh, you know, guys from England or whatever, so mm -hmm. he was here. So my name got in that mix, mm -hmm. and I went up. Long story short, I guess it was an audition. I didn't know it was an audition. I never really had auditioned. People just did word of mouth in the city. No one auditioned. The studio guys didn't really audition for anything. Mm -hmm. You know, you would just get a call. Someone would say, call Spinoza, or call mm -hmm. Hugh McCracken, or call whoever, and you'd get the mm -hmm. call. All right. So uh, I went there, and there was Paul and Linda in this like loft of this loft is like, I remember it was really dusty loft and dank and uh, he's like he asked me if I could play a certain rhythm on the guitar and he handed me like an acoustic guitar or something I said sure you know and the whole thing was surreal and I was like wow I'm in this room with Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney mm -hmm. and I was wondering what I was doing there really you know so then I played this rhythm and he said it sounds good and then he said do you play anything else I said yeah I play a little piano I said go over to the piano play a little something I played something on the piano we didn't jam together he didn't play bass he just asked me what I could play mm -hmm. and I said I played drums I started on drums he said that's great we played a few more tunes. He said, nice meeting you. I'm sorry that we had to do it like this. It's, but I can't, you know, how am I going to hear all the musicians this quick in New York? I said, fine. So I went home. I said to my wife at the time, Georgina, I said, that was so surreal. I said, I just met Paul McCartney and Linda McCartney. I guess they're trying to do a record. And I don't know what they're doing. It was like an audition. And then the phone rang. And my wife says, Linda McCartney's on the phone. This is about 45 minutes after the thing. Mm -hmm. She answered the phone. She says, my husband would like to hire you for the next five weeks to do an album. And I got the call after that was it. And so I wound up working on the Ram album. The first tune that I played on that record was uh, Just Another Day, which mm -hmm. was a single. Actually, mm -hmm. the single wasn't on the Ram album. The single was the, the, something they put out, but then that was at the time of the mm -hmm. Ram album. They never included it on the Ram album. But then I did that in the whole Ram album. And the rhythm he had asked me to play, turned out at the loft, was the rhythm that he wanted on that tune. And I guess he liked the way I played it, so he called me. And so, then I overdubbed about six different guitars. I'm, I'm, I'm all over that record. I'm doing all the electric guitar fills, plus all the doubling of the acoustics and whatever else is on there. Paul basically said, look, you know, I need to be able to know who to ask. I don't know the people in the New York freelance world. And David Spinoza said, yeah, but we've all made records. 
And Paul said, well, you know, you and I both know that what you hear on a record isn't necessarily what happened. So, yeah, it was kind of odd. But again, you know, he was sort of venturing into a world that he wasn't really that familiar with. And he had to do what he had to do to pick the players that he needed. I'm not sure what else he could have done other than maybe get to New York a couple of weeks earlier and sort of seen it on some other people's sessions and see how people were playing. But that's not real efficient. Yeah, I mean, he, he does seem to have picked up a little bit more skill in finding band members through the ensuing years. I mean, you know, like for Flowers in the Dirt, he actually went and held the sessions, which kind of became the Russian album sessions. Right. But, you know, those were auditions too, so... I'm not sure why it's that different other than that maybe the people who he brought in were not really necessarily already established top flight session players. I don't know. And then the current band, he didn't even necessarily select them. He's fortunate that they get along so well. Yeah. He probably pays them better than the first wings. (laughs) And they can do anything he needs them to do. Well, that's true. I didn't know until I read the book and it might've been out there, but he went from recording kind of on a four track doing McCartney to doing his first sessions on a 16 track. Ram was done on 16 and I didn't realize that. Right. Yeah. I mean, that just kind of opens your palate up. I wonder if it's a huge leap for someone like him to go from eight, which he was used to, to 16. It just meant not having to bounce down things. Right. Lots more options, I think. Yeah. I think for those sessions, you know, what John Eastman pitched to him and what he thought was a good idea was just getting out of his comfort zone, you know, getting out of London, getting out of, you know, using musicians who he knew, just getting out of EMI, you know, going from EMI studios, which had its own culture and its own rules and its own equipment. And going to CBS in New York, it's a very different thing. Well, and it wasn't just one studio at CBS. It was multiple studios in New York. Right, and A&R, and then, uh, then out to L.A. And the funny thing is that, you know, even though EMI Studios had a lot of the stuff that he particularly liked using because of the Beatles, particularly ADT, it hadn't occurred to him that other studios didn't just have ADT. He's out in L.A., and he wants to have a doubled vocal and he says, uh, can we just put the ADT on it? And Eric, the Norwegian had no idea what he was talking right. about. <laughs> well, I mean, to a certain extent it's what he says. in if these walls could sing, yeah, yeah. The, the thing I like about working at Abbey road is everything just works. The microphones all work. That, you know, kind of <laughs> has to be the same thing he's thinking of. Yeah. All right. Uh, Tommy Newsom. I was surprised to see that name come up as one of the players. Hmm. There may be nothing more than that, but it's like, oh, wow. That (laughs) isn't someone I ever associated with Paul. Right. A lot of people in the Ram sessions, Ron Carter, some really well-known players just doing session work. They got a pretty starry lineup together. And I guess Paul would have known him from when he was on The Tonight Show. He might have. Or at least met him, but... uh, Yeah. Then after that... The Les Fradkin session, this years before Beatlemania, of course, but it's just kind of ironic. It is, yeah. Uh, when I was 18, I got signed to Columbia, and Columbia's, uh, it's now Sony, uh, publishing and recording with John Hammond, who discovered Bob Dylan, Aretha Franklin, and some other folks like that. And he, um, 
he, he basically saw me as a producer and songwriter. He, he didn't see me as a, a singer. And given the way I sang at the time, he was probably right. <laughs> which is why I do instrumentals now. Um, and as time went on, I became a session musician, a record producer, a songwriter, a music publisher. And then I, I said, geez, I really want to get famous as an artist. How could I do that without giving away my material? And then I saw this advertisement in the Village Voice in New York City, wanted singers, musicians, look-alikes, sound-alikes for unique opportunity. And there was a little drawing of Paul McCartney with his, uh, from Hard Day's Night with his eyes and his hair. I said, this must have something to do with the Beatles. Good guess, huh? Yeah, right. And I certainly knew how to play the Beatles. So I went into the audition. I brought in my electric 12-string and amplifier. I plugged in. I played what I, I, a few numbers. And the guy said, great, you've got the job. I said, what job? He said, you still didn't know. I didn't know. No, he said, come in the next day. Be ready to sing She Loves You. And... Uh, We'll see how it goes. And a couple of weeks later, we had the complete band assembled. Uh, Mitch Weissman, myself, Joe Pecorino, and Justin McNeil. Uh, we were all from the New York area. And uh, we turned into a pretty crack team after 10 months of rehearsal. And that became Beatlemania, which debuted on Broadway and was rather popular. Oh, it was over two, what, a thousand, over a thousand performances on Broadway alone. 1,006. I did the first 767 in a row before I lost one. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> one thing that struck me in writing this and we you know we didn't necess- necessarily point up all the connections but in some ways you know we're we're writing this stuff and saying wow it really is a small world. People just keep turning up who you you wouldn't have imagined and and yet there they are. Right. Yeah. One of the things I was impressed about at this point in the the career is when you listen to another day really linda's vocals on it are are pretty amazing i mean it's a great set of background vocals that's true and a lot of the stuff on ram and going forward this is where everyone is criticizing her keyboard playing which is a very easy target and you know she said herself she didn't wasn't a pianist uh, and and she did take piano lessons during wings to try and improve what she could do. But everyone sort of focuses on the keyboard playing and overlooks the vocal contribution she made, which really were kind of stunning. And even if Paul is writing the parts for her, basically telling her, you know, what the line is that she's going to sing, she did it. And who knows, there may have been certain harmonizing things that she brought to it herself too, that they tried out and Paul liked and they kept. Well, there certainly is a tone to her voice that is identifiable. Yeah, that really makes Wings sound what it is to a large degree. And the blend that she had with Paul and Denny. Yeah. We've mentioned it before on this show. That is the sound of Wings, and that is why you can really call all of the versions of Wings a single entity. Mm-hmm. Because Paul and Linda, basically. Well, Paul and Denny. And Denny, yeah. Yeah, that is the consistent core. Yeah. The harmonies are there pretty much across every record that is a Wings record. Mm-hmm. The guitar styles change, the, the drummers change, the drumming styles change, but that harmonic sound is there. Absolutely. Paul was always 
very fond of harmony. I mean, going back into the Beatles, you know, look at here, there, and everywhere. If you have the surround mix of that and have pulled it apart, you can actually get all the background vocals without the lead vocal. And it's just stunning stuff. And you can see where, you know, you listen to Backseat in My Car, you can see what Brian Wilson's influence was. And not just backseat of my car. He turns up every now and then. And Paul's basically, you know, said as much. The Beach Boys and and Brian, particularly as a harmony composer, has always influenced him. There was a show that Elvis Costello had called Spectacle. And Mm -hmm. and he mentions that he felt like Paul had really taught himself to alter his writing style so that it wouldn't sound like the Beatles. And Mm -hmm. he said, I don't know if you realize how difficult that would be to not write like you intended, you know, how you naturally would do it. And Interesting. I don't know whether when they started composing together that uh, Paul decided, well, I could be a Beatle again. (laughs) I don't know. But, Mm -hmm. uh, But I thought that was an interesting observation. And part of that is the harmonies with Linda and Denny. Yeah, that's true. You know, I think he's evolved pretty steadily over the years. And if it started out as trying to do something that wouldn't sound beatly, I, I think it found its own level in a way, which in some cases allowed him to be beatly if he wanted to, you know? Right. I think he's given himself that permission. Well, first of all, I didn't realize that George Martin had scored Ram, but there's a scene that you lay out where Maka basically tuned the orchestra in a way that that sounded like the London Philharmonic. I thought, well, that's an ear that you can get the orchestra to tune in a way to sound a certain way. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know entirely what to make of that, except that it was coming from the string players saying that. So they know what they're talking about. And New York session musicians, and certainly New York session musicians who had spent any time as members of the New York Philharmonic, which several of these guys had, are not the most generous bunch when it comes (laughs) to criticizing the people they're working for. So, you know, anything they said that was positive, I sort of almost gave double weight to because it's just not their style. That was notable. And the fact that he was thrown into conducting himself, which, you know, he did a little bit of during the day in the live sessions, but the day in the live sessions... He wasn't really conducting. Right. And that orchestral part was sort of meant to be chaotic, whereas in Ram, he's supposed to be conducting George Martin's actual written out score. And he was thrown into that, and apparently it went pretty well. Yeah. You know, Phil Ramone, who Paul wanted to conduct it, you know, Phil Ramone was an experienced, he was trained as a classical violinist. He, he would be able to do that. And he basically just sort of threw Paul into it and said, No, you do it. You know what the rhythm is. You know what the music is. You know how it's supposed to go. Wave your arms in a way that seems logical to you, and it'll go. And it did. Great story. All right. uh, Lay out the Rupert the Bear (laughs) film and film soundtrack for us. Because what comes up through the book is Paul keeps sort of writing things and says, saying, oh, well, this will go into Rupert. The only evidence I see of there actually being a production was the announcement. Oh, Paul has obtained the rights to Rupert the Bear film. Right. Was there any more than that? No. 
Okay. No, it was just something he wanted to do. So he acquired the rights, which is the first step. He never bothered having a story written for it or dealing with a writer. He may have had some ideas of what the story would be because he kept writing songs and saying, okay, yeah, this song will be for Rupert. So he must have had some sort of sense, if not the plot, it would have been just a sense of, okay, Rupert is a bear and he's in the woods. And so if I have a song about a little lamb and a dragonfly, that could be a Rupert song and, and other things. And he, he just sort of began stockpiling them in the hope of, you know, when it's time to do Rupert, he'll have all the songs for it. You know, and that went on through 1979, the final iteration of Wings recorded an album's worth of Rupert demos. Then we didn't see anything until, uh, you know, Rupert and the Frogs. I mean, it's a real shame that he never did it because that short is just so gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why. It's just something he's never gotten around to. You know, here's the thing about Paul that, you know, probably came through the book. I hope it did in a way, and it will come through the full series once we get there. But this guy has such a fertile imagination and so many things that he wants to do that I don't know that a mortal could get through (laughs) all the things he has planned. Because, you know, he's got Rupert and he's got the Bruce McMouse and he's got this and that. And meanwhile, he wants to paint and he wants to do a sculpture and he wants to do kids' books and he wants to do a musical and he wants to do classical pieces. And he wants to go hang out and go find records in a little record shop off the way with no labels on them. That's right. He has an extremely full life. And I have a feeling that. At the end of it, which, you know, let's hope is a long way in the future, he's going to find that, yeah, there's this huge list of stuff that he never got around to. And and I think Rupert will be one of them. Well, I mean, to the present day, he's still got that full documentary, which was supposed to end with Glastonbury the first time around. You know, (laughs) that is supposedly done. And that's just sitting there. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot. There's also the film he made with Carnival of Light. He made a film using some of Linda's photos of Beatles in the studio and Carnival of Light as the soundtrack. Hmm. Well, let's hope the Wonderful Life Broadway show doesn't fall into that as well, although it's kind of looking like it might. A lot of question about what's going on with that. And also, I'm sort of dying to see what he's done with it, because there are so many pitfalls to a project like that. When Adrian and I were in New York doing you know, promotion for the book, we got into talking about that. And Adrian was saying, well, I don't see how you can do It's a Wonderful Life without the song that they keep singing, you know, George Lasso's The Moon, and can't remember what the song was called. But how can you have it without that? I mean, that is such a central element of the film. Well, he's going to have to. He's going to have to come up with another song of his own that is as important to the production. That's a big thing to ask. It's apparently finished, so even if it never gets produced, it could get produced at any point in the future. The music's done. The book is apparently done. So it'll turn up one way or another, probably. All right, so we move on to that, to something that did get completed, the Oddball Project Thrillington. 
which doesn't come out until book two. <laughs> well, okay. But the project is basically done in, in book one. That's right. So you can't really talk about it because it's not coming out yet. <laughs> well, the recordings are there. I mean, it, it always just seemed to me like one of those disposable ideas that Paul had when he was stoned one day. But you show that he had put a lot of thought into this project. Quite a lot of thought. I mean, even to the point of Paul and Linda going up to Ireland and trying to find some guy they can put into a tuxedo and photograph him, you know, as as if that's Percy Thrillington and taking out ads in the newspaper saying, have you heard Thrillington? You know, <laughs> right. Booking the session time, getting Hewson to come and do those arrangements, which is an interesting thing because, you know, given how much he hated The Long and Winding Road, which is Richard Hewson's orchestration, you wouldn't imagine that he would hire Hewson to do a whole album of his stuff. But, you know, but did Paul necessarily know that? No, what? The, the Houston was the one who did it. I mean, Houston came through James Taylor through Peter Asher, right? And and I think he used him for uh, Mary Hopkin too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Houston says that he talked to Paul about the long and winding road, and that basically what Spectre recorded was not exactly what he did. Well, Spectre kept bringing in more and more people, and strings, the Spectre and, thing. Doing the Spectre thing, exactly. Yeah. So I think Hewson was kind of embarrassed about it too. But you would think that if Paul hated that recording so much, that Hewson would end up on the do not call list. But he didn't. He, he got called for you know really quite a big project and then you know sat in the can for quite a few years until I guess 77, I think that came out finally. Right. Phil wanted, in his usual way, a massive orchestra. Which I love because I like big orchestras. Great fun to conduct a big orchestra. Why so not? I, I, not being aware at all that Paul wasn't involved in it or didn't even know about it, I got on with the job. You know, it was a quick job. It was it was called in the evening and had to be ready with it by one o'clock the next day, which meant meant a long night. Then I just assumed that everything's cool and Paul was fine about it. And in I went, did the thing. Didn't think any more about it, as as you well know. You go away from an arranging session, you don't hear any more until the record comes out or something. You get on with yes. the next job and whatever it was. So I heard no more until this hit the fan, as it were. And yes. Paul wrote the letter saying never told you. Know, oh, went mad and crazy, but he he didn't talk to me about it at all. So you you never talked about to him about it afterwards. No, we we have met, we worked again a few times after that, and he never said a thing. I never said a thing. I just left it. But I mean, you, you guys were, were old friends, really. Old oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, you'd known yeah. each other for, for years and years before that. That's and right. so yeah, I, it was. what I've always said with people is that his, his up, he was upset the fact that it all went on behind his back without mm. his consultation, not because you had written anything bad. All right, the last thing I have on my list here, what was Atagoros when Paul bought it, and how did it actually become MPL? Yeah. That is a big mystery. Atagros was a company that if you read the description that I put in the book that was from their own literature about what they are, it sounded like something that could be a production company, but could also be a construction company. Basically, a million things are covered in their self-description. <laughs> And it didn't seem to be doing anything. It just seemed to be a company that someone set up 
and then never did anything with. Now, why Paul bought that instead of just starting MPL, I'm not sure. Maybe there's something easier about taking over a company and converting it to what you want than starting fresh. I don't know. Tax issue. Yeah, could be. I have the description right here. I'll, I'll read it so people will know what we're talking about. Its stated purpose included to employ and exploit and turn to account the services of actors, composers, authors, and other professional persons, and to carry on business as theatrical employment and literary agents and artists and authors' personal representatives and managers, as well as to construct, alter, remove, or replace any building, erections, structures, roads, railways, reservoirs, machinery, plant, or tools, or works of any description. <laughs> you know, does that sound like a real company to you? I don't know. Maybe actors acting like they're building a railroad hmm. or something. I don't know. It, yeah. yeah, it sounds yeah. like a, a tax dodge or a uh, a drug front. Or you could say, you know, industrial light and magic probably <laughs> couldn't use that description, but they didn't exist at the time. Then he just renamed it. I, I don't think there were any existing officer. There might have been an existing officer or two who came along when Paul acquired it, and then he bought them out, put his own people in, changed the name to MPL, and presto changeo, you have a company. Right. Fair enough. I did have one more thing. Uh, the Hendrix Miles Davis story. It's probably better that Paul didn't get tied up in the middle of that, given the way that actually turned out. Right. That probably would have gone nowhere, but who knows? Maybe he could have been the catalyzing element that would have made it into something good. Who knows? But that's another one of those things that you can just imagine. But like you say, a lot of these things that you can just imagine, once the tapes start leaking out, you realize that there's a reason it was never released. <laughs> Tootin' a snore in 74, anybody? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, one of the things I didn't realize was that Don Kirshner was the publisher of McLean in the U.S. Yeah, for briefly anyway. That surprised me. That was before Don Kirshner was a late night concert show TV guy. He, he was the guy behind the monkeys. Yeah. I'm not interested in doing it myself, but there's a guy who could be a subject of a potentially interesting book. But where did Don Kirshner come into the picture? He was the he was the head of Screen Gems Publishing Music. Now Screen Gems, the overall parent company, was Screen Gems Television, a subsidiary of Columbia Pictures. And just not so coincidentally, probably, Screen Gems Publishing was the Brill Building. It was the organization that, through Donnie Kirshner and others before him, had created this magnificent monster of a publishing company. I mean, they had bought this publishing company from Don Kirshner because it was originally called Al Don Music, and they had purchased it a couple of years before the Monkees, and he had built up the stable with Goffin and King yep. and Man and Whale and, right. and Jeff Barry and so on, and so he had this asset that he'd sold Columbia Pictures, and he was chomping at the bit to find the vehicle with which to use his writers to take it to the next level. Don Kirshner had full control over doing whatever he wanted, putting out whatever he wanted on a record without the consent of the producers and creators of the show or the members of the band. He had his fingers in more pies than I realized. Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, you know, you go back to the Brill Building and Carol King right. and Don Kirshner was there and as well. Neil That's right. And all that. Another thing that I thought, well, this is illustrative of perhaps the overusage of 
herbal jazz cigarettes um, <laughs> to buy a bus to tour Europe that had a top speed of 38 miles an hour um, <laughs> was not. And caused the cancellation of a couple of those gigs. <laughs> it's just like, really? Yeah, I mean, because you think about it, that just doesn't go very fast. Especially on the Autobahn. <laughs> <laughs> really you're finally on a highway with no speed limit and you can only go 38 miles an hour right and you have to actually get somewhere it's incredible to think that mccartney and wings traveled all that way on this bus 7500 miles in an open top bus it's crazy but that's paul mccartney you know he's he's originally got different ideas the way of doing things maybe a bit different to everybody else and although they did at times come off the bus and go onto other vehicles to concerts the fact they spent time here on this bus with his family is is amazing you know and the fact there was a playpen up here and all those little touches that make it wonderful the bus obviously went back to being a normal bus silver line coaches took it on afterwards and it was painted through different colors back to its original colors and eventually being picked up by tom tom jennings who's now got the bus and restored it uh, with the help of Brad, into this incredible vehicle, which hopefully for generations to come will enjoy other musicians coming on the bus, maybe inspiring them to write a classic song. You can see what it was that attracted him. You know, it was going to be, you know, they, they would basically just be sort of a big extended family on the road and they could go up onto the top level and, you know, lie out in the sun, maybe take a drink with them, put their feet up. It was an interesting idea in concept. It's just that once you sort of think about the details, which John Morris, the manager on that tour, thought of as soon as Paul said he wanted a bus, Paul you know, commissioned someone to find it for him, and John Morris was hoping that he wouldn't. You know? Yeah. And I think he didn't, even then, he, he, since he didn't know what kind of bus Paul was going to end up with, he didn't know the speed issue. Right. But yeah, John Morris was an interesting source for this book. Um, you know, he told us a lot about that 1972 European tour that we would never have run into from anyone else. That was a great interview. And- a lot of great stories. You know, if they were going to go out as a big extended family, they needed to stop referring to. Denny Sewell's wife is a drunk. <laughs> well, right. Yeah, especially seeing as she didn't drink at all. You know, not only do you put it on liner notes on an album, but, the, you know, Linda repeats it in an interview. Uh, that's right. That's Let's see, was JoJo on the scene at that point? Um, she turned up in the middle of the European tour. Okay, and- so, I mean, you know, <laughs> uh, I can imagine her on that bus. <laughs> Well, right. now comes the big question. Did Paul have a joint roller? Did he, did he employ anybody? To, to... Did he employ a joint yeah. roller? Um, <clears throat> hmm, interesting question. <laughs> I, I imagine maybe some of the Brinsley Schwartz guys had to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you said that they what, they sent them down in tape boxes and things? Yeah. So they were probably already pre-rolled. Uh, oh, that's possible, yeah. 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 Somebody at NPL. Yeah, yeah, cassette box would be very handy for that kind right. of thing. Sure. Yeah, and, <laughs> and after reading about the sweetest bust and all, all the detail, I can't wait for Japan. I mean, like one story of Morris and the prosecutor basically talking about Linda. You take her. No, no, no. I'll pay. Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting thing in this book. I mean, there are a couple of incidents like that where Linda's being 
a little unreasonable and people are responding to it. But I think mostly throughout the book, I think Linda comes off as a very sympathetic figure. Partly mm-hmm. we're giving her her due on those vocal harmonies that, that you mentioned earlier. Uh, but also she's someone who in interviews tended to say what it was, you know? So when someone asks her, um, so is Paul a good teacher, you know, he's helping you with music. And she says, absolutely not. He has absolutely no patience with anyone who doesn't already know, you know, she just says it, you know, obviously Paul is the central character of the book, but she actually added a lot of spice to it and was was uh, particularly interesting. The the way uh, you tell the story, I think in the beginning of the book, her contribution to Paul's sanity definitely sets her up as a sympathetic character. I mean, she, yeah, she certainly deserves yeah. that. But there is all kinds of nuance. You know, there's the, the, the fact that her friends in New York mm-hmm. feel sort of hard done by in, in that she went to England and fell out of touch with them for a few years. And you see Lillian Roxon taking it out on right. her. Linda did not marry one of the Beatles so that she could sit in a pub and sing, pack up your troubles in your own kit bag with a bunch of people called Mildred. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you know, this is the best version of the other members of wings. You know, I kind of can't wait until we get into the wings over America band to have you tell us that Jimmy McCulloch was not actually quite the drunk that we uh, like to play him out to be. Sadly, I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, That's not uh, in the book. Uh, someone will not be very happy with you. Let's put it that way. Yeah, his biographer, I suppose, because none of that stuff is really in there. I mean, <laughs> it's a little bit of a whitewash, but, you know, he was an incredible guitar player, and that was what Paul wanted. And, uh, you know, Jimmy began acting out very early, and it was very frustrating to Paul. But it was the playing, ultimately, that he went for. So that's how he lasted as long as he did. That whatever you think and whatever you think I've done, this, I'm telling you, this substance, cannabis, is a whole lot less harmful than rum punch, whiskey, nicotine, and glue, all of which are perfectly legal. What about your children? I would like to see it decriminalized. Because I don't think, in the privacy of my own room, I was doing anyone any harm whatsoever. I thought that it was uh, notable, and some people are aware of it, some people are not, that Paul came out very pro-pot, very courageous. Oh, yeah. And basically, in this book, when we talk about the, the Swedish drug bust, you know, he kind of said, you know, someday it's going to be a, a fuss about nothing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that there, and here we are. There it is. Although it's interesting, his view nowadays is, yeah, well, pot is not what pot used to be. Right. Well, I just don't think so. he needs the hassle. I mean, I, I think he's still fully uh, engaged, as it were. Or maybe he wanted to wait until it was legal in so many places so that then he could be against it. Right. (laughs) Right. That sounds more like John's style, actually. Despite what he says, you know, we've got the photos of him on his last vacation 
Uh, at least enjoying one. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I never thought he really stopped. I think he might have toned down a bit after Beatrice was born because uh, there was some pressure there yeah. to do that. And as he says, you know, drugs aren't what they were in the 60s. And they can be a bit more dangerous. Although pot, I mean, I don't know, you can lace it with something, but uh, not the pot he gets. So, yeah. Well, that's why they sell legal all things must grass now. <laughs> right. Yeah. I also, you know, some of the pot aspects with him are usually entertaining. And one reason I think is because, as you say, he just stood right up for it and said, look, you know, drinking is legal. And this is less harmful than drinking. So uh, it has not as bad an effect on me as drinking, that's for sure. You know, and he's just come right out and say it. But, you know, he could also be pretty funny, like the, the Scottish bust when he had to go up and, and be in the courtroom and then talking to the press afterwards. And if you look at the footage, you know, there were certain tells that Paul has, which one of which is like scratching the side of his nose. With his middle finger. Yeah. <laughs> and they say, well, so, uh, so what happened to Paul? How did you come to grow them? Yeah, well, we got a load of seeds, you know, kind of in the post, uh, and we didn't know what they were, you know, we kind of planted them all, and five of them came up like, five of them came up illegal. Scratching the side of the nose. <laughs> so right. there was that plus his lawyer getting up and he's fined, what, a hundred pounds. He's flown up there on a private jet and he's fined a hundred pounds and his lawyer gets up and asks for several weeks to pay it. <laughs> and Paul made a point of that with the press yes. too. He says, you know, imagine flying up on a private jet and having your lawyer ask for several weeks to pay a hundred pound fine. <laughs> So, yeah, you know, I mean, these busts are obviously they're serious business because it means that, you know, he's going to have trouble touring in the U.S. Right. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. But I think he made the most of keeping it entertaining. Yeah. He, right. he was honest right. and upfront without putting himself into danger. Mm -hmm. Good on him. You know, there's a part of the book where uh, you mention John telling Paul that he was all Pizza and Fairy Tales, uh, <laughs> and that would be a good album title, you know? Yeah, definitely a good bootleg right. title. But I thought Paul, just a few sentences later, comes up with, Fuck off, Joko Jack. So I thought, that's a better <laughs> album title. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was good. Um, a couple of funny incidences. Henry mentions... Touring Feet, which is a, a musician I, I really felt for, because, you know, there's something about when you take off your shoes um, <laughs> after having played a lot, there's there's a certain odor that will stay with you. Um, right. And I also <laughs> thought around that time that talking about Mary Had a Little Lamb, Paul kind of justifies mm -hmm. doing that. By looking at chart trends, which I thought was interesting, that he was looking at other right. songs at the time that, that would somehow fit with. But at the same time, when it came out, Lennon's corresponding single was Woman is the... They were pretty far apart at that point as far as their thoughts about the music industry. Although they would both do Irish protest songs very soon. Right, and... 
Paul put his out immediately. John sat on his for months, which is sort of the opposite of what you would imagine, you know, given the instant karma approach to putting things out immediately. You would think that John would have wanted to get this right into the conversation, so to speak. Yeah. You know, but he was in New York and maybe the distance insulated him a little bit so that it just, it became something interesting to write about, but not as immediate as it was for Paul who was in London at the time, although in the lyrics book, he says he was in New York, but he wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) There's, I think, simply a memory issue, you know. But fortunately, early in the uh, work on this book, we interviewed Denny Sywell a a bunch of times. And one of the times Adrian talked to him, Denny said, I used to keep this log of all my sessions and my wife used to keep a diary of, you know, everything I was doing. And would you be interested in seeing those? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> duh. <laughs> so, you know, they were very generous with that. And that helped us establish an absolutely solid timeline because anything that the first version of Wings did was in Monique's diary. And as we know, She wasn't drinking, so she got it right. (laughs) That seems clear. Well, and that very much fills out the character of both Denny and Monique. You know, we we learn a lot about them. They aren't quite minor characters, but they are certainly secondary to the story. But we learn a lot about Paul and Linda through their view of them. Right. And we get a bit from Henry, too. Obviously, we couldn't talk to him because he had died before we started. But we had a bunch of interviews, you know, with him in the archives, both audio and and print interviews. And he was pretty straightforward about what he felt about Wings, uh, certainly what he felt about Red Rose Speedway being cut from a double album to a single album, certainly what he thought about Mary Had a Little Lamb. He was pretty straightforward about that in his interviews. But I mean, that was not Paul's fault. Paul wanted the double album. Right. No, I don't think he blamed it on Paul. I think Paul had shaped an album that was going to show Wings as a group. And that's what all of them wanted. And then Capital or EMI didn't. Right. Because they were going to be bringing out the Red and the Blue albums, and George had an album, and they felt that it would be sort of a glut of Beatles stuff. And when you consider that Paul's previous album was Wildlife, you could see that maybe they were being a little gun shy. And ironically, now that we have it, the double album really would have been much better. Immensely better. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's night and day. <laughs> but, you know, they never really finalized the track listing for the double album. They had quite a number of different track listings for it. And I think to this day, Paul doesn't know what the finished version would have been. So they put out this sort of speculative one. Uh, Yeah. They just sort of picked a track list that they found. It's Paul McCartney's version of smile. I think. Right. Right. We we never really came up with the final track listing. I also kind of think that Paul sometimes was able to be flattered. I mean, right in the middle of, the feeling with wings about it's not really working the way we thought it was. We're not happy about the money and the album's not coming out the way we want it. That's when McCartney decides to be in a show called James Paul McCartney. Right. You know, and that had to be part of it as well. We're, yeah. we're in this special that spotlights Paul and we're kind of here. 
if you're in a group like Wings, you kind of have to recognize that even if Paul really does want it to be a group of equals, it's never going to be a group of equals so long as one of them was in the Beatles. <laughs> right. You know? well, I mean, what, what's the story that Paul likes to tell? He would go off on the Friday and say, oh, okay, what's going to be the next single? Everybody come up with a contribution and, and we'll play them all on Monday. And it was always Paul's song that <laughs> right surprise well there are things in the book that i think people will find fascinating you mentioned that back in the ussr was kind of initially thought to be given to twiggy which i that's right I'd never heard before and it's some speculation that mike mccartney might have had some hand in writing when i'm 64 you know he wouldn't tell us which song it was so i, I think i i might have reasoned this out in one of the footnotes, you know, just trying yes. to piece together what it had to be. He said it was one of Paul's biggest songs, which I'm not sure when I'm 64 really is, but, you know, it's on Sgt. Pepper. So let's count it as a big yeah. song. And it had to have been written when Mike was in grade school. So that puts it like, you know, mid fifties, mid to late fifties. Okay. So, it's probably not love me do, you know, so, so what is, it's not, I lost my little girl. So what is it going to be, you know, and, and when I'm 64 seemed to be a logical guess. Yeah, makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think you also mentioned that Paul had taken some comment that George had made about being prisoners of negotiations and their fame and everything. And, and he kind of worked at it and kind of inspired the whole band on the run concept. Yeah, that's right. Or at least inspired the beginning of the band on the right. run concept that, you know, stuck inside these four walls from the rain exploding, etc., was a different song that he grafted on as was his want. He actually wrote quite a number of songs that way by bringing disparate songs together and, and, and sort of melding them into a whole song that sounds natural. It sounds like it should be the song. They had very different origins. But yeah, the, George's comments, I mean, this is the thing about Paul. It's sort of like, you know, he's, you know, the one of the little characters in Yellow Submarine with a big sort of trumpet snout that's, you know, able to just sort of suck everything in. In a way, that's sort of Paul, you know, everything goes in there and anything can come out as a song. It's just amazing that, you know, he'll read a newspaper article or someone will say something or a puppy will be a runt and get called Jet. Right. <laughs> you know, it, right. Well, it, and that's why we can believe that maybe Paul really did see the Eleanor Rigby headstone and that at least stuck with him then when he went by oh rigby's yeah there you go yeah it's very possible i would think that you know that might have been subconsciously in there but once you get into subconscious stuff then you're sort of treading on you know that, that's a whole nother book yeah <laughs> well it's difficult as a writer to just kind of blank page everything mccartney clearly uses his life and experiences and something he overheard and you know, all sorts of inspiration to start a song. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then it might go someplace completely different. Right. Uh, you know, for instance, the 1882 
we're theorizing in any case. I mean, we, we don't have him saying this any place, but around the time he wrote that, there were a number of articles in British newspapers about the IRS tarring and feathering people. Ah, right. Uh, the IRS, the IRA. <laughs> Sorry. It's like different. <laughs> uh, it's getting to be tax time. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, and then that becomes a whole thing. I mean, the, the, the song gets set back in 1882, so it's not the IRA at all. And it's almost Les Miserables. It's that story of someone sort of stealing bread for his family right. and getting caught and tarred and feathered and drawn and quartered. It's quite gruesome, but I uh, <laughs> don't know why he was thinking of all that stuff. But the impetus was just an article in the newspaper about the IRA doing this to people you know, who they consider traitors. I think there's a quote from John Lennon talking about their songwriting styles. And he mentions that Paul just kind of makes them up like a novelist. Mm -hmm. you know, so Yeah. You know, that wasn't his style. Right. Although, you know, it could have been Bungalow Bill. <laughs> there's quite a number of John songs that cry, that, maybe cry. that way. Well, and Paul doesn't mind writing about himself. He doesn't like to get intensely personal, but on some level, he will write about himself. Sure. Yeah. And he's happy to write about Linda, or these days, Nancy. Dear boy, that story, I like that a lot. Whoever comes up with a song for your wife's ex-husband. <laughs> right. Yeah, that is a novel touch, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. The last note I have. Reading the book made me kind of go look for things. I've listened to McCartney's catalog again, the albums that you cover, and it did bring me to the Bruce McMouse footage. <laughs> and I have to say that it's an early version of High, High, High done in a different form, and it's great. I think <laughs> it's so much better than the, than the single. got that out of your book <laughs> interesting yeah because now that he's put out the live in europe disc you can get that original high 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 and uh but it's amazing how much work he put into it you know that's the other thing about paul in the 1971 lawsuit ringo's deposition he talks about you know paul will just go on and on until he gets his way and that's what happened with High, 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 too. And it happens with a bunch of his songs. He has a vision of what he wants, and he just isn't going to rest until he's got it in the can. And it may be that, as you say, the, the original High, High, High is in some ways more interesting, but the studio one is you know, what he had in mind, what he wanted right. to do, or at least by the time it was finished, and he just kept at it until he considered it acceptable. But we still never got the mess. <laughs> still never got what? Well, we'd like to carry on now with the song which is called The Mess. Bit of a rocker, so I want to see you. Shaky bums, right?
the mess, right? right? So, I think you also mentioned the Linda said the same thing that Paul just kind of goes on and on and on and kind of yes. wears you down. <laughs> you know, it's definitely one of his traits. <laughs> And not necessarily a bad thing if, you know, I mean, if you're him, you know what you want and you're going to see that you get it. A lot of people are like that. Yeah. All right. So we'll, we'll close with one last thought. What I call the Burning Man version of the uh, Mary Had a Little Lamb video. Where in the heck did that come from? That's just so weird. <laughs> the whole tent in the desert thing. And so at odds with the song. Yeah, you know, he hired a director to do these and just went with what the director set up for them. I don't think he has to take the rap for that <laughs> one other than being in it. I also believe that there were some herbal jazz cigarettes consumed <laughs> at those sessions. So, if, there, if there's some part of Paul's career that you have a question about, you could just kind of go, well... There's a good chance. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> if something doesn't make sense, if something seems just a little bit surreal, yeah. it could be that. Right. <laughs> His second wife, perhaps. Uh, well, I don't know about that, but uh, all right. Uh, you know, thank you very much, Alan. When are we looking at for volume two? You say you're well into the writing phase of it. Yeah, um, I believe probably the end of 2024. It's due at the end of 2023. And there are no contracts for future editions, but you want to try and make this a four or five volume series. Well, we originally wanted it to be five, and I was having lunch with my editor, and she said, how many volumes do you think it will be? And I said, well, we're thinking five. And the look of horror <laughs> that came over her face made me say, I mean, four. <laughs> so, you know, we're talking about 45 years now for two volumes. That's going to be a lot, even though, as you know, most of that is touring. Well, right. You know, that's what we felt. I mean, he did slow down in terms of album production, but he has all this other stuff, you know, the painting, the classical music, the kids' books, et cetera. Um, those are in there. But, you know, as, as you say, with tours, I think we lucked out on the tours that we covered in that there were interesting things happening, including the odd pot bust. But some of the tours, you know, from 1989 on might be a little hard to do in the kind of granular way that we did with the tours in this book. Um, they're much more things like the secret gigs and Paul going out and reading poetry in between playing songs and, and the right. almost unplugged tour. There's things related to the touring, which might be kind of interesting to read about. Yeah. So I guess we're going to have to see how we pace ourselves on those um, final two volumes. It's true. <laughs> um, so do you have an idea of where the second volume would end at this point? Um, it'll end sometime in 1980. There are a number of possibilities. Uh, it could be while he's still in jail in Japan. That would be a cliffhanger. It could be when he gets out and, you know, we could end it when he's on the plane back to London. Or we could go all the way through to the end of the year. But I think December is really the next phase of McCartney. Yeah, you should stop before yeah. the assassination for sure. I think the next book should start with that. Yeah. You know, in terms of the number of albums we're covering, adding McCartney to 
to this volume might make it a little unwieldy just in terms of well, – let me put it this way. We were supposed to write 225,000 words and we wrote 325,000 words and our editor very nicely did not hassle us about that. She did cut about 20,000 words that had to do with the whole NEMS and Northern Songs attempted acquisitions and what went wrong with all that stuff, partly on the grounds of, you know, this is kind of delaying us from getting into Paul's career itself, which is what you're writing about. So we'll cut 20,000 words out of that. And then Adrian and I immediately came up with another 20,000 words <laughs> that we could add various places in the volume <laughs> as we went through. So we're still 100,000 words over. And what we're thinking is, although they didn't hassle us, we're thinking that we can't make volume two any bigger than that. <laughs> no author's editions from you, huh? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, you know, there's I haven't found anything much about you talk about McCartney's the McCartney's going to boxing matches, but there are all those stories about them going to to go see John Conte pre Band on the Run cover. There's not much of that in there. There's a little. There's a little. There's I, a little. I, I think he sees John Conte um with Denny Sywell yes. uh, at a you know, when they're in L.A., a closed circuit thing. And and then there was an Ali fight, the the rumble in the jungle. Right. Yeah. Uh, and there was the one that was on the night of uh, the tribe that hides from man. The, the, the match was so short that he ended up switching over to see the documentary and ended up writing Karina Crore. Right. There's another example of... <laughs> Right. Just anything he sees can become a song. You never know. <laughs> I like that. Um, I like you. You said something uh, or a quote from him that's uh, talking about boxing that I almost don't like liking it, which yeah. I thought was kind of a, an interesting insight to his character. Yeah. yeah, this was interesting because you know Adrian is is much more into sports than I am, and so you know he was able to. Well, we were both able to find every, every boxing match that's mentioned in the book. I think there are only like three or four. We found video of the full matches for each of them. And he did let me get away with this thing where I talk about, you know, Paul has this, went home to enjoy a guilty pleasure, which is watching two grown men pummel each other until <laughs> one falls down. <laughs> it, was, it was sort of indulgent of him for, to, to let me uh, describe boxing that way because he likes that stuff. Can I say? <laughs> right. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. This has been great. I think we've learned as much—not quite as much—but we've learned a lot from this conversation. That uh, and you brought up a lot of things that people should be on the lookout for in the book. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, I recommend the book to everybody listening. All right, we will be back next week with the new show. So I hear. <laughs> I'll tune in. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California.
I mean, we even put together a, a little playlist um, so you can actually uh, listen along with the book. And, you and you know, I'm guessing that some people maybe won't, won't have heard some of Paul's lesser known songs from this period. So we hope that by the time they've read the book, they'll maybe have some new favourites. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. 